Brut. New Art on Stage. Welcome to the eighth edition of Gesellschaftsspiele, The Art of Assembly. This episode is based on a hybrid live event on September 18th, 2021, at the tent in front of Volksbühne am Rosa-Luxemburg-Platz in Berlin. My name is Florian Malzacher. I'm hosting The Art of Assembly, which is a nomadic series of lectures and conversations conceived together with Brut Wien in cooperation with Wiener Festwochen, Münchner Kammerspiele and Volksbühne Berlin. This episode is marked by the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, and I'm very happy to be joined by Judith Butler and Max Haven, both in their way perfect guests when it comes to this topic. In the Art of Assembly, we look at the potential of assemblies in activism, art and politics. And if you missed our past episodes, for example, the very last one, the very lively one with Didier Eribon and Chantal Mouffe, you might want to check out our website with videos, podcasts and other material. And recently, we even have a newsletter that you can subscribe to at www.art-of-assembly.net. The Volksbühne in Berlin, where this episode was recorded, is of course a very good place to talk about assemblies. With the history as a workers' theater, which saw many assemblies in its early days, but also because it has been the site and the object of a more recent assembly initiated by the artists and activists of Staub zu Glitzer in 2017. This was an assembly that was a performance, it was staged, and it was very real at the same time, at real consequences, political and personal consequences. So this is exactly the thin line in which we are interested in this series, the thin line between art and activism, art and politics. And in recent episodes, we have looked at many aspects of assemblies, at small and large gatherings, at the coming together of humans and modern humans. And we have drawn lines between many movements of the past decade, from the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt to most recent manifestations of Black Lives Matter or the Yellow West in France. And of course, all of these movements have been very different. They have happened in very different contexts under very different circumstances. But what has united almost all of them has been their demand for more democracy or even for radical democracy. And in most cases, also a profound critique of financial capitalism. But of course, in the Western context, the most referred to movement has been, up till today, Occupy Wall Street, which has begun almost on the day 10 years ago at Sakoti Park in New York City. Occupy Wall Street became a symbol of resistance against financial capitalism and big corporations. And its assemblies set examples for a different way of discussing and decision-making that has influenced activists all over the world but also has resonated very much in theater and art. Looking back, this looks very close and very far away. It was before Brexit and Trump and COVID. And while the issues raised by Occupy Wall Street are of course far from gone, the discourse has changed and has changed quite drastically in recent years, the confrontations, the alliances. So when we look back at Occupy Wall Street, Many of the questions that already were raised at the time are still in the air. Was the refusal to formulate demands the only way to avoid losing momentum? Or was it wasting an opportunity? 
was the fundamental skepticism towards all institutions a logic consequence or did it prevent any sustainability? Is the idea of consensual democracy just naive, as it was formulated by Chantal Mouffe in the last session of Art of Assembly? What are the limits of horizontalism and inclusion? And how inclusive was Occupy Wall Street anyway? Was the claim, we are the 99% presumptuous, as Didier Eribon stated in, his, in our last edition? This discussion will continue and we will also touch upon some of these questions today. But Occupy Wall Street was also something else, as Judith Butler, of course, outlined profoundly in her book about assemblies. It was performative. It was not only about changing reality, it changed something already by happening. So in this episode, we will look from two different angles at the last 10 years and the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. Judith Butler is, of course, the author of very many, very influential books, one of them being Toward a Performative Theory of Assembly, which was, of course, a main reference point for our series so far. In her contribution today, they will ask how, in the light of recent pandemic experiences, an ethics of care can enter into our politics of assembly. Writer and activist Max Haven has written illuminating books about the role of collective imagination in the struggle against capitalist hegemony. In his lecture, he will summon the ghosts of Occupy and look back at a haunted decade. And by this also remembering David Graeber, who very unexpectedly died a year ago and who was, of course, a key figure not only for Occupy Wall Street, but also a key thinker for the decade afterwards. So I'm very thrilled to announce Judith Butler with her lecture, Where Are We Now? Assembly, Care and Connection. Judith Butler is currently Distinguished Visiting Professor of Philosophy at the New School University in New York City. They are the author of several books, including Gender Trouble, Precarious Life, Notes Toward a Performative Theory of Assembly, and The Force of Nonviolence. They taught at the University of California at Berkeley for several years, where they helped to create both the Critical Theory Program and the International Consortium of Critical Theory Programs. They are currently at work on two book manuscripts, Kafka and the Law, and Who's Afraid of Gender? Very welcome, and the floor is all yours. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Um, and I want to thank uh, the folks Bühne and all of their allies in Vienna and elsewhere who have made this extraordinary series possible and who uh, have invited me to join uh, in this conversation. I thank you very much. I, um, <clears throat> I want to say some general things about assembly during our time and then uh, I will be very glad to engage in conversation about Occupy Wall Street. I know that is something everyone is uh, reflecting upon uh, at this time. So in, in English, at least, uh, to assemble is to bring together disparate parts um, or disparate things, not to make them whole, but simply to make them work together. To assemble a machine, for instance, is to bring together mechanical parts to make a new object one is that, that one that is supposed to serve a function. And if we talk about assembling a group of people, the analogy seems to break down 
it is true that one person can try to assemble a group of people with the idea that they will speak or do something together, but assemblies can and do happen without any one person bringing people together in that way. Sometimes the gathering starts to happen and people join in. Of course, there must have been a beginning to that sequence, that clustering, but that does not mean that one person made it happen. Indeed, a gathering, almost by definition, happens when people, in the plural, come together. They may find themselves together on the street or online or in front of a government office that has failed its obligation to serve the people. They may suddenly see that others have arrived and more are arriving. We usually say in English that the word gets out and maybe some clever person put out the word, word, the word but, that, but the word that gets out, the word that calls upon people to gather is a word that is out of one's hands. It does not work magically without any human interference or agency, but the word is out, the word gets out, the word runs through a number of people, expanding its radius and effect, forming or helping to form a group for the purposes at hand, bringing them together in a designated space that can be, usually now is, at least partially virtual. A virtual gathering is no less a gathering than a group on the street, on the street it's just a different sort of gathering. Further, gatherings on the street are incited by virtual communications, communications which continue in throughout the gathering. So what we now call physical gatherings in specific locations are occasioned and accompanied by objects and instruments that allow for virtual presence and for broader communication, if not expanding networks. Although I began this evening with a distinction between assembling objects and assembling persons, I have already, I think, within a page, called that distinction into question, since it seems that technology makes and communicates the call, accompanies humans in their pockets and hands, if not as vehicles for movement, and it gets the word out in at least two senses, come gather, a call, an invitation, an incitement, but also look world, this gathering is what is happening. I'm not saying that technology has taken the place of the human subject. No, I am saying, however, that human agency is intertwined with technological modes of incitement, report and documentation. And that generally speaking, no single subject brings people together. The assembly in this sense, calls into question a certain singularity of the subject, but also can and should dispense with the idea of the charismatic leader. In its place, a we emerges that did not know itself in advance, but comes to recognize itself as a tentative, perhaps transient group in the process of its formation. The right to assemble has always presupposed the power to move, and the right to move is less well theorized, except perhaps by disability scholars. The work of Hagar Kotev makes it clear that many co key concepts of democratic theory 
depend upon the capacity and power to move. If the gathering is in a public square or even online, one must have the capacity and power to arrive. But who arrives, or rather, who can arrive? The public square may be shut down for political reasons. The public square may be architecturally inaccessible for many people who cannot move without technology. The public square may have been sold off to developers who are building corporate headquarters and expensive townhouses in its place, as we have seen in Turkey, an effective neoliberal suppression of a long history of public protest at Taksim Square. It may not be a place where women can go safely on their own. It may not even be open to LGBTQI people, as we have seen in the proclamation of trans-free spaces in parts of Europe. Some people may be confined to the home or prison by legal authorities. Thus, whoever arrives at an assembly had the capacity and power to arrive and the instruments, vehicles, infrastructures that made that movement possible are part of the assembly itself. They're doing the work of assembling. As such, an assembly will always reflect a division in society between those who can and cannot move and arrive. And even though arriving through screens such as these is possible for many, the screen, the computer, even Wi-Fi access cannot be universally assumed. So that inequality is also part of assembly, part of what assembly reflects about society and hopefully addresses. Of course, a gathering is not quite the same as an assembly since an assembly usually involves some kind of political deliberation and procedure, some way of collecting voices, agreeing on protocol and forms of action. But the, even the spontaneous parliaments of the kind that emerged in Buenos Aires after the end of dictatorship required first that police and government agents were no longer patrolling the streets. The public sphere had to be cleared so it could reemerge in a new way. And when mass feminist protests filled those same cities, convening feminist assembleas there and in Chile and Puerto Rico, those groups did convene and decide, but the protocol was less formal than those found in assemblies established and maintained by laws. Although some have argued that gatherings are distinguished from assemblies because only the latter assemblies rely upon or in, are in the process of building parliamentary procedures, perhaps there are actually several more distinctions that we need in order to understand this difference because forms of relatively spontaneous assemblies can be marked by formal or informal procedures or a mix of the two. Not every assembly seeks to become eventually part of a state apparatus and some oppose the very idea. As we know, during the pandemic, it has been difficult to gather, although many of us have come together to oppose racism, fascism, attacks on, on women and LGBTQI peoples, increased precarity under capitalism, climate destruction, homelessness, to name a few. All of these movements are also affirmative struggles for gender and sexual freedom, an earth that can be sustained, racial justice, economic equality and justice, 
rights of transit for, migrant, for migrants. In some ways, the pandemic has changed how we gather, but also why we gather. It has introduced the ethics of care into our political movements, showing us a new way to think about the relationship between ethics and politics. At the same time, we have seen the continuing furor of right-wing movements that are either explicitly neo-fascist or drawing on fascist forms of belief and action. They assemble and gather. They have their elaborate networks. They generate their bots um, exponentially through uh, effective algorithms. And they now pervade social media and public politics and are responsible for the most serious forms of political censorship during our time. Hence, this is no time to be idealizing the powers of assembly without making clear which kind of assemblies we want and why. This is surely also a time to deliberate carefully about the kinds of assemblies that prefigure or enact the kinds of democratic ideals we wish to see manifest throughout global societies the kinds of mobilizations we savor. And to do that, we have to know what they oppose and seek to dismantle and what they seek to affirm and build. We know that the pandemic has intensified social and racial inequalities within our institutions, households, and overlapping public spheres, exacerbating for many the lived sense of peril associated with the workplace, the home, the street. Queer kids forced to stay in the homes of their family of origin risked perilous forms of isolation and abuse. In some sense, the pandemic has brought into relief zones of struggle and forms of injustice, which must inform our social movements going forward. Another path of political mobilization has been marked out by the pandemic because of the ongoing climate emergency and the important movement, movements for climate justice, which have rallied people across the globe to join in, the, in that movement, in those interlocking movements. But whatever politics we are building now, whatever it is, we, it must bring together those two issues to oppose both forms of destruction, the destruction of ideals of equality, the destruction of the earth, of life itself, and the prospect of its continuation. Further, the communities of care that have emerged in the midst of this pandemic have constituted new social forms, life-giving, expanding the notion of shelter beyond the household and the nation. And the same could be said about the public art now online that has us listening and watching in new ways. But the police violence against black people, women and men, trans people, travesti, the indigenous in places like Brazil and, and the Andes, on native reservations in the US and Canada, coincides with the systematic forms of letting die promoted and accepted by market enthusiasts who operate under the guise of realism or by manic neo-fascists who deny the reality of the ongoing epidemiological risk posed by COVID-19 and oppose vaccines on specious grounds. It has been made clear which groups are especially likely to suffer from the virus as a ravaging and life-threatening disease. 
The vulnerable in my country include black and brown communities deprived of adequate health care throughout their lifetimes and the history of this nation. The poor, the migrants, the incarcerated, the disabled, trans and queer people who struggle to achieve rights to health care and all of those with prior illnesses and enduring medical conditions. The pandemic exposes the heightened vulnerability to the illness for all those for whom healthcare is neither accessible nor affordable and whose long-standing health problems result in part from decades of poor health care. Perhaps there are at least two lessons about vulnerability that emerge in the midst of the pandemic. It describes a shared condition of social life, of interdependency, exposure and porosity. After all, COVID-19 is a disease of the interconnected world. It also names the greater likelihood of dying understood as the fatal consequence of a pervasive set of social inequalities. This is one reason that the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer of 2020 not only took place in the midst of a pandemic, but reflected back the social inequalities that had become life and death issues. Now the radically unequal distribution of vaccines, along with, with the fatal consequences of such a distribution, have exposed the existential threat of social inequality on a global scale. This inequality is also the reason that care has become more than a domestic or interpersonal relationship it names the political demand for infrastructures of healthcare, shelter, uh, medicine, and food. Although some have associated care with maternal ethics, it is surely time to de-domesticate care and to understand it as an ethical relationship that emerges from our shared interdependency and to realize our collective sense of obligation to and for one another a sense of obligation that transcends national boundaries. I have elsewhere argued that in order to understand social inequality, we have to understand how grievability is unequally distributed. That unequal distribution is a key component of social inequality. And we fail, I think, to grasp inequality if we do not reference grievability. It follows that the designation, whether explicit or not, of a group or a, or a population as ungrievable means that they can be targeted or left to die without consequence. Hence the kind of social inequality established by differential grievability is also a form of violence. And in my view, the struggle for a nonviolent politics is at once a struggle for the equal value of lives and against the lethal logics, the necropolitical metrics that continue to designate parts of the human population as dispensable, lives not worth safeguarding, lives not worth mourning. The struggle then against social inequality has to be a struggle against differential grievability. And this struggle has to be part of any nonviolent politics. For nonviolence is not only opposing this or that act of overt violence, but also violent institutions and policies and violent states, ones that adopt as their policy, the targeting of populations for death or um, 
for letting people die in conditions of duress. We can think here surely about the European Union's cruel policy toward migrants and its hideous criminalization of humanitarian actors who seek to preserve the lives of those seeking to cross the Mediterranean when nation states refuse. If we ask why we should pursue nonviolence, well, the answers are many. But once we understand that our lives are bound up with one another, we are no longer the kind of separate selves who can consider ourselves apart from the lives, intimate and anonymous, with whom we are bound, to whom we are bound. This last can be understood not simply as a subjective disposition of care, an inclination or an orientation. It is rather the name for the social bonds by which we are defined and sustained and which are our obligation to maintain. Under conditions of pandemic, it may be that we all suffer from a form of melancholia. How does it become possible to mourn so many people who have died? What kind of public mark or monument would begin to address this collective need to mourn? Everywhere we sense the absence of that mark, the void within the sensible world, where gatherings are themselves highly restricted. Gatherings are for many the only way to mourn. What ways are left? Many have now attended the Zoom memorials and know the difficulty of this practice, the inability to see someone close before they, they go, the inability to gather with those who knew that person. These all make for truncated experiences of loss where acknowledgement cannot happen openly and together with others. Many are returned to the household as the site for mourning, deprived of the public gathering in which such losses are marked, given social reality and commonly registered. The internet has more fully claimed its place as the new public sphere, but it can never fully substitute for those gatherings, both private and public, that allow losses to be fathomed and lived through with others. A purely private form of mourning is surely possible, but it cannot assuage the open cry, the stories, the songs that petition the world to bear witness to this loss. And with public losses of this magnitude and quick succession, there are political questions that are linked with the demand for public mourning. To say that all these lost lives are grievable means that they are lives worthy of acknowledgement, equal in value to every other life, a value that cannot be calculated an equality that must be thought of as radical equality. Now, too often I, people say, oh, let's not focus on this sense of ambient death and this uh, problem of mourning. Uh, let's not focus on the negative. Learning to mourn mass death means marking the loss of someone whose name you do not know, whose language you may not speak, who lives at an unbridgeable distance from where you live. One does not have to know the person lost to affirm that this was a life. The right to belong to the world is an anonymous right, but no less obligatory for that reason. What one often grieves is the life cut short, the life that should have had a chance to live more, the value that person has carried now, has, carries now in the, in the lives of others, the wound that permanently transforms those who live on. What someone else suffers is not one's own suffering, but that hardly makes it unthinkable. 
the loss that the stranger endures echoes with the personal loss one feels, even though it is not the same. Strangers in grief nevertheless form a kind of collectivity. In the wake of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, it strikes me as significant that the United States never mourns those they kill, but only its own citizens. And among its citizens, only those who are white and propertied and married more easily than those who are poor, queer, black, or brown. Living humans bear a sense of whether or not they belong to the grievable classes, as it were. To say of a living person that they are grievable is to say they would be grieved were they to be lost. It is also to say that the world is organized to sustain that life, to support the future of that life. And those who live with the sense that there is no certainty about food or shelter or healthcare also live with a sense of their dispensability. And part of living with that sense of dispensability is the sense that one could die and pass from the earth and that would leave no mark and there would be no acknowledgement. It is a sense that one's own life does not matter to others, or rather that the world is organized, the economy is organized, so that the lives of some will be safeguarded and the lives of others will not. When, for instance, we see how the economy started up knowing full well that some people will die, a class of dispensable people is being formed. This is a fascist moment in my view, one that emerges in the midst of a market calculation and we are living in a time when this form of calculation threatens to become the norm. It is in fact a rationality and a power that we must fight. Finally then, we gather when we do in order to gain strength in numbers, but also to deliberate on how best to fight, to struggle, to achieve a different and more just sense of the world. But we also gather to grieve Learning to mourn mass death means marking the loss of someone whose name you do not know, who lives at an unbridgeable distance from where you live. But one does not have to know that person to affirm this, that life. Um, uh, the loss that the stranger endures echoes with one's own personal loss, as I have suggested. I want to suggest as well that when we gather, we gather in rage and injustice with hope to produce a different kind of world, a new imagining for this world. But also I would suggest uh, we mourn. And when we mourn the loss of others, especially those we do not know, we start to articulate a new sense of equality, one that we need for any possible future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judith. We keep the questions and the, um, uh, for the further discussions. And now I would just first ask Max Haven to, uh, to come to the lectern. Max Haven is a writer and teacher and Canada research chair in culture, media, and social justice. His most recent books are Art After Money, Money After Art, The Creative Strategies Against Financialization, and Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts from 2020, which came out just after the pandemic. Oh, you already referred to the pandemic, so. Uh, Haven is editor of Vagabonds, a series of short radical books from Pluto Press, and he teaches at Lakehead University, where he co-directs the Reimagining Value Action Lab. Thank you for being here, and the floor is yours. 
Thank you so much, Florian and, and staff at the Volksbühne and, and Judith. Uh, it is truly delightful to be assembling again, I have to say. In October of 2011, I was in New York City at, for the height of the Occupy encampments. It was a particularly fortuitous time for me. At the time, I was pursuing a postdoctoral fellowship at New York University on the topic of financialization, which is the process by which finance capital, including big banks, debt, and high finance, were transforming society and culture, and indeed still are. I was doing research for also at the time for what would become a 2014 book called The Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity, which I wrote with my colleague Alex Kasnavish. And for obvious reasons, the Occupy movement, which arose as a response to the bailouts of the banks and the abandonment of everyday people in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, re represented a perfect conjunction of both topics, both financialization and social movements. I was, I confess, a observer rather than a participant in Occupy Wall Street. I visited almost daily on my way to and from NYU. In addition to witnessing general assemblies where thousands of people practiced and reinvented participatory democracy, I spent a lot of time talking to people who gathered on the sidelines of Zuccotti Park where Occupy Wall Street took place, the people who hesitated to enter. Now, it was about this time that I first met David Graeber in person, though I had discovered his work years before. His book, Towards an Anthropological Theory of Value, the, the False Coin of Our Own Dreams, quite literally changed my life. Back in 2006, when I read it, I was a young graduate student, trying to puzzle through the riddle of how immaterial wealth of the financial sector shaped the real economy. How something that seemed like a figment of the collective imagination could become so very valuable and so very terribly powerful. David's book showed me that the emergence of value is always sociological, not economic, and that it always involves the imagination. Humans and all their many civilizations use the imagination to create and to give meaning to economic life. They do so to facilitate their cooperative activity as a cooperative species, even if most of the time our forms of cooperation are coercive, hierarchical, and deeply unfair. The way economic justices are normalized and made to seem natural and inevitable when in fact they are arbitrary, David argued, is a work of the imagination. He would take up this most famously in his book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, which became so very influential to many of us. Now, many scholars I was reading at the time uh, leading up to Occupy Wall Street represented this normalization of oppression in quite pessimistic ways as the effect of ideology or false consciousness that beguiled people into believing that dominant narratives that kept them in check were necessary and natural. In contrast, David was in a sense an optimist even in the ways we as social actors deceive ourselves about the nature of the system of which we are a part, he saw the tremendous power of the imagination as a collective force for changing the world. In his book, uh, in his debt book, he asks us to consider if today's social and economic world is held together by this toxic story of neoliberal obligations that see the poor constantly enthralled to the rich, of what other narratives are we capable? What other material worlds can we build from the same power of the imagination? It was also from David's writing that I learned another important lesson that would become key to my and Alex's theorization of the radical imagination. You don't just imagine the world differently and then it magically changes. And here David was quite impatient with the new age, change your mind and everything will follow, politics so prevalent in the United States with its long history of individualism and volunteerism. 
Rather, David was quite clear that based on his anthropological study of many civilizations, and especially of the way civilizations change, not just stay the same, there has to be a dialectical relationship between, on the one hand, the transformation of material life and how people work and cooperate together, and on the other, the way they are empowered to imagine the world together and how they can transform that imagination. You can't have material transformation without the imagination and vice versa. Now, it was this approach that led to David's great enthusiasm for and his famous protagonism within the Occupy movement, which is where I met him for the first time. David had worked closely with veterans of the radical wing of the so-called alter globalization movement, which was the subject of his book, Direct Action, and in collaboration with some of them began to develop a framework for participatory democratic decision-making that would become the kind of operating system not only of the Occupy movement in New York City, but all around the world with its large, open, chaotic general assemblies. And I want to remind us of how deeply this notion of participatory democracy and these protocols were indebted to the, ins uh, the inspiration of the indigenous Zapatista uprising in Chiapas, which broke onto the scene in 1994, whose influence on the ultra-globalization movement was immense. And that itinerary from the Zapatistas also must include the so-called anarchist turn in social movements in the 1990s and 2000s, with its prioritization of collective process, participatory democracy, and so-called prefigurative politics, where one not only seeks to have a revolution, but to create the revolution here and now in the way we behave, treat one another, and treat with one another. One cannot avoid here noting the huge importance of feminist movements and organizers for whom the idea that the personal is political was also extremely important. All of these came together in the people who, before the occupation of Zuccotti Park even began, started laying the infrastructure for the occupations without which the Occupy movement would never have flourished. Now, looking back at David Graeber's writings and talks during and after the Occupy movement, I'm struck by three major themes I want to draw out because I think they're, very still, they're still very much with us today, although in hindsight, in the intervening decade, I think they've morphed and often in quite dangerous ways, both to the left and to the right. So first, for David, the Occupy movement represented a great crucible of the radical imagination that could only emerge in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. The fact that billions of dollars magically one day seemed to disappear from the global economy put the lie to the pompous claims of neoliberal economists that capitalism was a fair and rational system. The fact that the crisis had been triggered by banks and other financial giants preying on the poorest and most vulnerable people in the American economy, the so-called pool of subprime uh, borrowers, revealed that neoliberalism was not and had never been about creating general prosperity. And the fact that the, even the great democratic hope Barack Obama chose to bail out banks and abandon the poor and working people uh, in, to austerity revealed the great powers in America did not rest with the people or with the president, but with Wall Street. For David and many others, the collapse of the financial system in 2008 was not only an economic crisis, but then also a crisis of belief, of belief in the necessity, the naturalness, and the inevitability of neoliberal capitalism, and the myths of debt and credit that held that system together. It opened the possibility for not only having a slightly fairer economic system, but for reinventing the economy altogether. For David, uh, this reinvention, once it's just a matter of dusting off the Keynesian playbook for a new welfare state, 
rather than new economy would be based in the kinds of grassroots practices of solidarity, of care, of mutual aid that the occupiers were actively experimenting with in Zuccotti and in other parks all across the continent, and which took forms that included collective kitchens, volunteer-run medical clinics, free libraries, democratic meetings debating the occupations how, and how they would govern themselves, how to deal with conflict, and how to manage a division of labor. So second and related, for David, the Occupy movement represented the real meaning of democracy based on a fundamentally anarchist principle of the personal responsibility, direct participation in democracy, and the distrust of unchosen authority. For David, this form of anarchist democracy was a hydra that had reared its head many points in human history, especially in moments of crisis when the legitimacy and the mythology of those in power weakened. For David, it was not just a set of ideas or institutions. Democracy was first and foremost a practice, the practice of self-governance, the practice of autogestion. Unlike many right-wing free market libertarians who were also part of the Occupy movement, David's and many other people's view of autonomy was not about individual egoism, but collective interdependence. Democracy, in other words, was in no small part a practice of care. The protocols he and others built for operating the General Assemblies tended to stress consensus rather than majority rule, which led to no shortage of terrible logistical problems, with meetings descending into chaos or lasting far into the small hours of the night, the, the mainstream media mocking it the whole time. And yet these experiences gave a whole generation of activists and organizers a taste of freedom they didn't know could exist beforehand. Now finally, David's writing on the Occupy movement was also animated by his characteristic playfulness. For him, humor was deeply political. Along with fellow anarchist anthropologist James C. Scott, he was acutely aware of how much those in power and authority fear being laughed at. The moment of people's laughter represented the end of the regime as such, though of course not the end of the struggle to overturn their rule. David saw the Occupy movement as, in a sense, a grand pageant of disbelief a moment when not only those in the encampments, but also millions who watched them at home on television or on the internet smiled together and acknowledged that those in positions of economic and political authority were clowns. The boardrooms, the ward rooms, the press conferences, the expert panels, the cabinet meetings, these were all just theaters of the absurd. And reality was happening in the parks, in the squares, and hundreds of other locations across the continent where occupations began popping up like mushrooms from the decaying stump of neoliberalism, the fruit of some subterranean anarchic mycelium. These three themes ran through David's protagonism in the Occupy movement and his reflections afterwards. The last time I saw David was in a tan trench coat disappearing into a cloud of tear gas at a gilet jaune protest in Paris in 2018, grinning like a fiend. Characteristic, uh, in spite of that movement's tendency to attract both left and right actors, Graeber was characteristically optimistic about it. For him, its particular demands were less important than its form. Once again, the people were arriving, assembling in the streets. They were creating a new material economy of mutual aid and also new economies of the imagination. Now, in the decades since the Occupy movement, I think we can trace many of its legacies, and here I will limit my comments to simply the Anglophone North Atlantic, and perhaps by extension the UK. In spite of the fact that the Occupy movement had no explicit political agenda, and there were massive differences in ideological opinion among its participants, I think we would not have had the campaigns of Bernie Sanders in the United States or Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom without Occupy. 
On the one hand, Occupy alumni played major roles in those campaigns. On the other, they benefited from a shift in the climate and discourse on the left that the Occupy movement catalyzed. Many participants and supporters uh, of these campaigns, um, of this institutional and electoral turn on the left, including David Graeber himself, who worked closely with the Corbyn campaign, cut their teeth in the occupations. And I think this is also true of the important extra-parliamentary left formations that were shaped by Occupy in the subsequent decade. Some of the most important movements in the United States today stem from Zuccotti Park, including Debt Collective, which has been a remarkably successful movement in fighting for debt abolition in the United States, and also a constellation of very important groups, most of them headquartered in New York, who are fighting within galleries and museums against financialization and the predatory classes that it serves. The Movement for Black Lives, which arose in 2013 in the wake of the extrajudicial assassinations of Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and others, was not itself at all a result of the Occupy movement, and that should be categorical. Indeed, in spite of the leadership of many black, prominent black and racialized people, the Occupy movement was notoriously bad at dealing with race and racism in a meaningful way, and it largely hid itself behind the euphemism of the so-called 99% to paper over substantive differences. But many of the white and racialized supporters of the Occupy movement would later go on to be supporters of the BLM movement and help swell the ranks of protests and do public education around it. Occupy alumni had been influenced by those early occupations and brought that influence and radicalization to the next wave of struggles. The BLM movement, on the other hand, emerged from a very different itinerary of black radicalism in the United States, but it still resonated with many of the things David was celebrating about Occupy Wall Street in spite of their differences. Um, an anarchic leaderlessness that saw participants forging new, ungovernable relationships of care, mutual aid, solidarity, and democracy in the streets, making a demand with their bodies in action rather than only with their words or policies. Like Occupy, the Black Lives Matter movement was ungovernable, and that was precisely the point. In my home country of Canada, in the 2012, the indigenous uprisings that came to be known as Idle No More also emerged from very different roots from the Occupy movement, inheriting a long tradition of militant indigenous resistance to settler colonialism and its racist political and economic regimes. Yet of the hundreds of thousands of non-indigenous people who joined that movement in solidarity with indigenous people, no small number of those in solidarity had years before been camping in city squares uh, through the Occupy movements. And though the Occupy movement itself was frankly total trash when it came to addressing colonialism and was based on the hubris that settlers could and should occupy stolen indigenous lands as a form of protest, nonetheless it gave rise to a generation of activists who were for the most part willing to lend support and learn the crucial importance of decolonial struggles in the years that followed. We might also point to a whole new generation of radical intellectuals and artists who were radicalized by the Occupy movement and who have since then made major contributions to the way we think, the way we protest, and the way that we build and assemble democratic institutions. Now, it's not my objective here to argue or suggest that the, move, that the Occupy movement was solely responsible for all of this, and in order to gloss over the many, many ideological, practical, and political problems with the Occupy movement. I've already identified some of them. 
the movement was not only largely ignorant of, but uninterested in race and colonialism at the beginning, which profoundly structure uh, capitalism and undermine any easy claims about the so-called 99%. The movement attracted a dog's breakfast of political tendencies, some of which were completely ideologically opposed to each other in everything except their dislike of Wall Street, tendencies that ranged from far-right libertarianism to Christian socialism, from conspiracy-driven single-issue mavericks to the worst holdovers of authoritarian 20th century Marxist sectarianism. While the movement certainly owed a debt to feminist and queer methods of organizing, the encampments were often deeply unsafe spaces and had few protocols for dealing with sexism, transphobia, and abuse. Further still, while I've tried to suggest that many of the greatest movements of the 2010s were inspired and shaped by Occupy, I think we can also trace its DNA in some of the forms of reactionary and far-right organizing that has also terrifyingly gained so much traction in the intervening decade. I've already mentioned the political ambiguity of the Gilets jaunes protest in France. In North America, a new generation of the authoritarian right seems to have embraced many of the techniques and patterns of the anti-authoritarian left, including the formation of small affinity groups, a politics of dissensus, and a preference for ungovernable, leaderless convergences, such as the march on Charlottesville, which began the Trump regime, or the siege at the Capitol, which ended it. The Occupy movement's antagonism to Wall Street also manifested in the generally but not exclusively right-wing activism around cryptocurrencies in the last decade and the forms of individualist financial empowerment, including the GameStop phenomenon of revenge investing from earlier this year. Absent a radical analysis of capitalism as a system of mass exploitation, Occupy easily incorporated libertarians whose imaginations were so confined to the neoliberal architecture that their dreams, of their dreams of liberation were limited to changing the monetary plumbing of the system. I also wouldn't be the first to note that strange similarities in organizing style and even in some cases rhetoric between the Occupy movement and today's constellation of anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown activists. It's not simply their aggressive takeover of public space. The Occupy movement welcomed all those who agreed that the relationship between government and corporations was damaging to society, including many conspiracy theorists who rejected the need for political economic analysis in favor of simplistic narratives. Shaped by decades of neoliberalism, these narratives then and now tend to be preoccupied with the limits on or threats to personal freedom, Unlike David's anarchist tradition of a capacious, interdependent freedom, this kind of freedom is typically centered on and makes a fetish of the figure of the individual as homo economicus, instilled by uh, and created by a financialized world, the lone risk taker who must be liberated and empowered to compete. We are now in the pandemic, entering a new cycle of struggles, I think. For a generation who is today in the proverbial and literal streets, Increasingly participating in racial justice, queer, and anti-fascist organizing, Occupy is a distant memory. Many of those I met in 2011 are parents of small children. They're struggling to find work in precarious and competitive economic sectors. And they have, more or less gracefully, many of them, retired from radical politics. Or worse, some have changed their colors, trading in their activist credentials to buy access to the capitalist world or mainstream politics. A younger generation, who are now coming of age in the streets, has witnessed this, and they're frustrated. For them, the Occupy movement is often seen as a quaint failure, and a failure for which they and their generation will pay the price. 
After all, Wall Street and the financial sector are more powerful than ever. The campaigns of Sanders and Corbyn failed, and they failed largely thanks to the conservatism of older voters, even some older voters on the so-called left. And now, a new generation is staring down the barrels of the gun of climate change, which threatens to make a mockery of all reformist efforts. And then there's the pandemic. And yet, whether they acknowledge it or not, this latest generation inherits something of the DNA of Occupy. And I think D David was right that the Occupy movement represents a major and historical rupture. It revealed the supposed laws of neoliberal economics to be little more than bad theater. And yet we remain on its stage, and the stage is set for austerity, and we seem unable to rid ourselves of its script. The Occupy movement revealed that democracy is a practice, not a set of ideas or institutions, and yet we seem unable to transform this realization into meaningful change in our political structures, and we are within those political structures, let's be honest with ourselves, slowly but surely losing ground to the radical right. And indeed, the powerful and political economic institutions that we live under do increasingly appear absurd and unbelievable. No one believes a rising tide will lift all boats anymore. But of course, no one's laughing anymore. The world is in fact run by clowns, sure, but that's proving to be the world's terminal problem. We will, I think, gather in the streets once again together, whether it will be this year or next year, we will once again feel the infectious joy of realizing our own collective power of the imagination and action, of democracy as a birthright that we nonetheless co-create. We will once again oppose the banks and their politicians with nothing but our bodies. We will debate long into the night and come to consensus more from exhaustion than agreement. Our old friends will be with us, don't worry, sectarianism, egoism, petty jealousy, toxic careerism, patriarchal nonsense, unquestioned privilege, and overrighteous sanctimony. But so too will the selflessness, exhilaration, creativity, debate, and whatever that thing is that throws you when you stand outside of yourself for a moment, and you know that this is among the most important moments in your time, in your life, precisely because it is collective and it's real, and it takes up your whole heart. But next time will be different too. Occupy was, in a sense, a practice round for what will come next because we have no option left except to play for keeps this time. Too much hangs in the balance. But the occupations to come will be led by youth who are too young to participate in Occupy and have very different pathways to the radical imagination. And to them falls, indeed, a monumental and terrible task, not merely to contest power of corporations and the indifference and corruption of the political class, but also to fashion together something truly revolutionary, uh, some truly revolutionary form of global solidarity a form capable of turning the tide against climate chaos, against revenge politics, and against a form of capitalist necropolitics and human sacrifice that will make us all nostalgic for the days of neoliberalism. To them now falls the task not merely of becoming for a moment ungovernable, but of remaking power on the global stage and not as an experiment. My hope on this 10th anniversary of Occupy is that we can turn our attention to how we can support them. Thank you very much, Max, and uh, thanks again, Judith. And uh, maybe I would start um, before we go deeper, well, on one hand, on what the pandemic had produced, what are different notions of care that we might have to introduce in assemblies, etc., and also uh, to, the, um, to your final sentences of what is waiting for us in the future. I would like to ask you, Judith, if you as well would maybe reflect a little bit on what for you uh, Occupy, where Occupy faced and where you would see uh, that something lived on or created something uh, that came out of it later on. 
Um, you know, I, I know that there is a common discourse about uh, Occupy failing, but I think that a certain, um, uh, a certain mobilization came to an end, but uh, certain uh, key concepts about economic inequality and systemic inequality became extremely important in the United States and it was unprecedented. I mean, it was also, um, and I know this is strange from the European perspective, but it was unprecedented that we had um, an, an explicit socialist presidential candidate who was able to garner uh, as much support as, as Bernie Sanders did. So that was actually enormously successful. And I think it's the, the certain more uh, radical understanding of um, economic inequality has become part of public discourse in a way that it never was before. And when I say public discourse, I don't mean just talk, but I mean really policy, politics, uh, mobilizations. So I, I am not one to say, oh, that was a great revolutionary moment and now I'm desperately sad and when will it happen again? I, I don't feel that way. I understand some people do. Um, but um, uh, it seems to me that the feminist mobilizations throughout Latin America um, have been an enormous and they also draw on different um, traditions of assembly. And I'm, I'm very um, excited and impressed by that. Um, and they also involve, um, uh, for the most part, an anti-capitalist um, and an anti-extractivist politics, which uh, um, is extremely important for any uh, possible global solidarity. So, and I, I guess I would also say, let's, you know, let's think about intellectually, um, Feminism for the 99%. What was that book? Nancy Fraser, Angela Davis, and some others put it together. What about Angela Davis's abolition feminism now? Um, to some degree um, in, inspired by um, a deep anti-capitalism, but also um, um, ideals of racial justice, justice and practices of prison abolition. Um, what about the CARE Manifesto and the politics of interdependence by the CARE Collective that comes out of the UK? Um, and what about the fact that people who were working in Occupy Wall Street um, on the streets came to, to, to see that there were many people living on the streets already and then became involved in, um, in mobilizations to uh, help the unhoused and to bring to an end um, the, the homeless uh, crisis uh, in, the, in the United States, while others went, um, including Amin Hussein and others who were so important to Occupy went um, to um, Palestine to oppose the Israeli occupation. Um, so these are all, um, I, I think of them not as di di like direct causal um, uh, effects, but they took up uh, many of the aspects of, uh, of Occupy Wall Street and brought them into different domains. Some of them, you know, explicitly political, having to do with political parties, the democratic socialists um, certainly were uh, renewed and invigorated and, and others extra parliamentary um, social movements that were not interested in becoming political parties or even aligning with them. So I, 
I I'm less I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't see it as a, as a massive failure. I see it as generating a set of very interesting and promising effects. You want to add something to that? <laughs> I, I generally agree. I, I think it's, I, I wonder if, if we were to call it a failure, we would have to agree on what a success would mean. And I think anytime you try and define the success of social movements, you run into some very weird and thorny problems. So I, I, I entirely agree that there's an incredible, last 10 years, there's been an incredible legacy of the Occupy movement. Um, I think though, the one thing I would say is that among the young people I've talked to, they feel and their narrative by and large is that it was a failure. And I think that's worth us keeping in mind as this generation um, sort of emerges onto the stage. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're right, but that's what a lot of people feel. Um, and that's part of their narrative. So I'm curious how we could complicate the conversation with, with those interlocutors as well. And one, one thing um, which was mentioned briefly by both of you, but not uh, uh, maybe to go in, that, that of course of assemblies recently, I mean, yes, we have the Black Lives Matters and other uh, demonstrations, um, but, uh, but here especially also were the Fridays for Future, the, the, the struggle for environmental uh, well, for, for saving the planet, uh, if, if it is still possible, uh, that mobilized, uh, especially younger generation, massively uh, in, in Europe and in other countries around the world. And, uh, and this is a movement where the urgency of the claim really is so big that basically the, the whole notion is, and climate activists were saying this, of course, for many years, we don't actually have time. And you kind of mentioned also the, <laughs> Max, the, the long procedures in Occupy to, to get to an agreement on anything. So, so what would you both make out of the, the necessity of a movement which really doesn't have time, which needs to take over, which, which, and which, in which certain procedures of, um, of um, deliberation, but maybe also certain procedures of... Um, of care might be seen as obstacles uh, in the in this struggle. Maybe Judith, you want to answer first? And um, yes, I mean, well, um, it it doesn't strike me that care slows down a political action. If anything, um, proceeding in ways that keep solidarity together and that honor a set of differences and that do not insist on absolute consensus is a way of um, not only effectively trying to achieve a goal, but producing the very community um, in the course of action um, that one wants to see um, uh, take hold, take form in the world. So I don't think there's a shortcut around uh, care. I mean, I, I, do, I do think that was one of the problems with those who wanted direct, exciting, immediate action and effect, that they um, were willing to run over others um, and to obliterate differences and not, not think about who, who the people are who are actually being um, brought into the m movement. So... Uh, it was extremely interesting at Occupy how many people who were part of the encampments learned about mental illness. They learned about rape. They learned about um, the ambivalence that women have about calling the police. Um, 
They learned about police violence. They learned about homelessness. They, they actually became part of the communities that were outside of the encampments. And they realized that that was part of the, 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 the work they had to do. And that work can be slow or, 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 and much of it is given how much needs to be dismantled and brought about. Climate emergency is of course with us and it does demand absolutely immediate action, but the kind of action it demands is, is a dismantling of um, industrial polluters um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the quickest possible way. Uh, and I think that's, that's another issue. But if, if the urgency of the task allows certain people to assume power and um, ride roughshod over others, then we will see, as we have seen before on the left, um, you know, certain men taking over and a bunch of other people feeling like they have no place. And that's not democratic. I mean, democracy is a struggle. Chantal Mouffe surely said that when she was here. Um, but Angela Davis has said, look, it is a long struggle and, and it is full of failures and it is full of renewals. Um, and failure is part of the, 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 the long-term struggle and saving the earth is also a long-term long struggle that does need some immediate actions, but also a long-term solidarity. And you can only build that through interdependency. And interdependency, as, as Graeber saw, and I, I totally agree with him here, it, it's, it's, it's not a luxury. It is the very principle that allows us to think about um, opposing climate destruction and establishing uh, radical equality and opposing debt um, and, and systemic debt of the kind that he so rightly and, and brilliantly opposed. So um, I, I don't think any of these are luxuries. I think we want a democratic movement. If we want a movement that lasts, um, we absolutely need these concepts, not concepts, but practices. And I guess I would just add, I don't, I don't make strict distinctions between practices, ideas, and institutions. Sometimes our practices take form in light of our ideas or ideas get generated through our practices. And certainly, I think, given the medical situation throughout the world, we would be very foolish to oppose institutions as such. We need much better, more equitable uh, medical institutions as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, these are really great, great points. Uh, maybe the only things I would add is maybe three quick points. The first is that I think, sure, I think you could propose or you could imagine that you could have a movement that didn't move through the circuits of care and through the questions of social reproduction. But someone is going to do that labor. The question is only whether you're going to acknowledge that someone's doing that labor or whether it's going to be kind of outsourced to the home, to the work that has traditionally been ascribed to women. Um, so ultimately, like, care is a part of all movements. It's just a matter of, like, how we're going to deal with that. And denying it is an option uh, if you're into kind of delusion. Um, and many activists and people are, but I, I don't think you could actually choose to just say that it doesn't exist and that, you know, somehow we're going to have any kind of movements uh, without it. The second thing I would say is like, I, I would entertain, I would, I would be very interested to hear a proposal for a farm of immediate anti-capitalist climate action that was like, um, like brutally instrumental 
about dismantling the structures of capitalist ecocide. Um, but I've yet to really hear one that is very convincing about its strategy. And I'm, I'm curious how an, a proponent of such a, an idea that you, know, you could just kind of have a kind of like ultra-Leninist uh, sort of eco-politics, uh, how that would actually work and how it would mobilize the millions, if not billions of people that it would require um, in order to actually sort of function to change things without going through a lot of these questions of care and, um, and, and mutual interdependence that have been the mainstay of social movements for the last 50 years, if not longer, if we go back to some of the itineraries through the black radical tradition or indigenous traditions, where care's never been separate from the, um, the way in which movements organize. And the final thing I would say is like, I think realistically, and I don't mean to be overly pessimistic, but like, we're past a certain point of no return. I mean, the climate, there's no stopping the climate crisis. The climate crisis is happening. I mean, there's wildfires all across the continent of North America and Europe and around the world. Droughts are happening. Forced migration is increasing. So, like, part of whatever we're going to do in the next two or three generations is a practice of care for the ruins that capitalism has already created. And if we're content to just allow, like, the people who are going to be displaced and disenfranchised by that crisis to suffer and die, then I'm not sure we deserve to have a revolution of any sort. Um, so somehow care is going to be part of this, whether we want it to be or not. And again, I guess maybe the final sub-point of this is, if uh, our movements aren't providing structures of care, we should be very worried about who is providing the structures of care. Um, you know, it's not beyond fascist and far-right movements to provide uh, solace in, in dark times, and they've done it before very, very effectively. I would um, restrain myself from all the other questions I have because we don't have too much time, so if uh, someone of you has a question or a comment. So, thank you so much, uh, Max Haven and Jeff Butler, for this uh, refreshing um, updates on what we kind of already know or have been facing for the last 10 years and that is an extrapolation of the crises, plural, and on the other hand, the notion or the need, the urgency of uh, new models of care uh, or care at all. So my question to you both would be um, also facing the, the left washing, the green washing, the white washing within the cultural spheres the, the way how the cities, uh, you know, in this next level of gentrification and the highly oppressive, well, post-pandemic atmospheres and where we are, how do we face um, this, this pursuit or the struggle that we are still going on? Or better put, how do we understand activism today? Because it's not the same as, you know, this, the idea of assembly and the, how uh, Judith Butler beautifully put, it's like, what brings us together? So why do we gather at all? And that's a question that maybe has intensified in the last years. So I'd be happy to <laughs> have an answer to that. Thank you. Who wants to answer first? Um, I, I'm not sure active, we can say 
uh, one thing about what activism is today or um, that would include all forms of activism. So maybe stepping back from the question a little bit will, will help us to um, uh, approach it in another way. Um, my own sense is that um, there are a wide range of very active movements, certainly climate emergency, climate destruction. We've seen Extinction Rebellion. We've seen many other groups come to the fore. They have differences among them, and some of them are dealing with the issue of race and some of them are not. We have a very strong feminist movement. We also have divisions within feminism on LGBTQI issues, especially trans issues. We have, in other words, we have a set of overlapping movements right now that are characterized as much by conflicts as by overlapping aims. And I think we have to give up consensus as, a, um, as an ideal I think we have to struggle with conflict and learn how to do that much better. Uh, learn how to do it nonviolently. Learn how to do it without breaking, um, because we we need all, all of these movements and we need them to be enriched by each other on the left. And that can only happen if we accept certain kinds of deep differences. At the same time, we continue working together. So I think uh, ideals of absolute consensus are paralyzing. Um, but I think working, um, working with and through areas of conflict is promising because there's a reality to that. And there's also uh, a chance of being transformed by um, uh, another movement about which one doesn't know enough. Um, so I, I actually believe in expanding coalitions and in dissensus you know, following Jacques Concierge to some degree, uh, accepting that there are certain things we will not resolve, which doesn't mean we can't show up at an assembly together. Um, and that, that strikes me as, um, as much more promising. Um, I'll maybe just pick up on one part of the question, which I heard too, which I think is really an interesting one for us to dwell with in, in a space like this and in circumstances like this, which is that, there, there's been kind of two tendencies over the last 40 years, which I've been tracking in some of my other work, and I know many of you are thinking about as well, which is like, on the one hand, artists and art institutions have become vectors of radical politics in really interesting ways. And now it's not, it's not a coincidence that we're here having a discussion about the future of radical politics essentially in an arts institution, because most of the other institutions are just not amenable to those. At the same time as the fine arts in various ways and arts institutions have moved towards hosting these kind of discussions and debates. We've also seen an incredible way in which financialized capitalism has been able to mobilize the arts as a vector of speculation through the mechanisms of gentrification and others. And I'm not saying I have any um, answers to that. I'm just maybe, I'm just expanding on what I think I heard in your question, which is like, how do we um, continue to have these discussions and debates and, and advance radical thinking and be in solidarity with social movements when, uh, you know, we are also, in those of us in, involved in various ways in the arts, being mobilized in these ways that are against our will. The only thing I would say about that is I think that now everyone, in a certain way, everyone on earth is in this weird position. The arts, in a weird way, are no longer the, um, the like, the weird outlier. Uh, I think 
financialization of capitalism and its desperate need to increase profit and to extract more surplus value and resources just means that everyone on the planet finds themselves at their own frontier of accumulation, which on the one hand is very terrifying, but also very promising because, you know, the long history of frontiers are that people fight back. Thank you. There was a question over there. I guess I would like to ask you if you see some parallels between uh, the way the legacy of the 68 movement and the way the legacy of now Occupy movement and also the alter-globalist movements have been kind of twisted and misrepresented by like this linear notion of progress and how success of a movement should look like. And then how do we celebrate and recover and keep alive some of the traditions that were so vital to those movements and of some of the practices instead of trashing them as something that was deemed as failed, yeah, because it didn't transform the reality. It does have a lasting effect. So I don't know if this is a clear question, but I hope it points in the, yeah, in the right direction. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great, a great question. I think that, you know, as our, as the patron saint of all such discussions in Berlin, Walter Benjamin put it, not even the dead will be safe from the enemy if he's victorious, and he has not ceased to be victorious. So there's a weird way in which the dead of radical movements, both literally and metaphorically, become resources for a certain narrative of neoliberal inevitability uh, to the present. Uh, when I was doing my work on the radical imagination, I was also very interested in the legacy of 68. And there's a great book uh, in English by Kristen Ross, uh, May 68 and Its Afterlives, which really goes into this in some amazing detail. Also about a theme that we were discussing in the email before this about um, the kind of depression that sets in after the radical event and the way that once you've lived that moment of a kind of um, explosive freedom um, you, it, it's very difficult to go back to the business as usual, back to the old normal, um, and the incredible toll that that takes on individuals. And one of the things I also like about Ross's approach is she goes into in some detail how the heartbreak of having to return from an event which you, for some reason, consider to be a failure, often jettisons people or propels them across the political spectrum into the right. And of course, she goes into the history of many of these uh, uh, French, one-time radicals who then traded in their credentials to become members of the right intelligentsia, such as it is, which also happened in the United States and also happened in Canada. Um, I don't know if any of these things are safe. I, I, my, my temptation to maybe pick up on, on Judith's words from earlier is that we need to preserve the, uh, the, the practices of remembering these events as assemblies in and of themselves. And I think an event like this is really interesting where we come together and we actually talk about the good and the bad and the successes and the failures and whether any of these terms make sense anymore to talk about Occupy rather than allowing it to be kind of stultified in the history books is, you know, yet another example of a movement whose time came and went and we're all apparently wiser and better for it. I think some of that too might also include reopening uh, old wounds. And I, I don't know if Judith would agree with this framing or reframing of, of the terms they introduced, but um, a certain, uh, making certain past events grievable too in a certain sense, in the sense that we come together to think about what's past, what they could have been, what they weren't allowed to be. Um, 
I think here again about Benjamin's discussion about the kind of ghosts of history and, and the debt that we owe to the hopes of our ancestors uh, for the dreams that were denied. Judith, you want to add something to this? I, I think the last suggestion is a good one. Maybe we're here to grieve. You know, are we here to grieve <laughs> the loss of Occupy Wall Street? Or are we um, here to derive from that movement I ideals, hopes, promises that we would like to see incarnated in new movements or maybe already are? Um, I think that um, depends how we tell our social histories um, and, and what the measure of success and failure is. My sense is that radical democratic ideals emerge again and again in different movements and they get refined and um, uh, not necessarily in a, in a progressive direction, but, but they do uh, recall those histories. And it's extremely important that we not let those histories be um, effaced uh, in their complexity, what worked there, what did not work there, what can we learn going forward. Um, but also um, look at what's happening now. I mean, today, tens of, I think about 10,000, maybe more people are huddled under a bridge on the southern border of the United States demanding legal entry into the United States, meaning demanding to be processed under international law. You know, they, they actually have the right to be processed. They can be rejected, but they must be processed. And the United States, under Trump, under Biden, you know, has found ways to, um, to deny them their right. And they are huddled under that, that bridge and we learn about it. And we, what is that? Is that an assembly? Is it a, is it a gathering? Is it a protest? What, what is the claim? What is the, the right to move, the right to enter that they are articulating? It strikes me that these are, these are the movements of the present um, uh, and they're, they're movements um, not just for migrant rights, but against racism and against nationalism and against forms of neo-fascism. And this is, this is one of the clear sites of our mobilization. So we don't have to imagine, you know, oh, what will the next mobilization be like and how shall we form it? No, it's happening now. The question is how best to understand it and how best to support those, those efforts. And um, the COVID uh, regulation clock is ticking, but I would give one last uh, question to Alex Karschner, whom we also owe the invitation here with Art of Assembly. So I know you want to also comment something. And I just would ask um, you and uh, you two to be a bit brief so we don't get kicked out before we end. And uh, Alex, please. Yeah, thanks very much. I just wanted to say we here in this tent, and I also um, want to remind of Christoph Schlingsief the, the slogan, you know, what he did in the election, the, fail, the failure as, a, as an opportunity, Scheitern als Chance. And that, that struck me as a sim similarity to David Graeber, who was so super optimistic you know, in his work. When he talked about the alter globalization movement, he said, oh yeah, we won all the way. We were so successful, we couldn't even process it. So I really liked that spirit. And talking about grievance, we had, when he died, we had the best grievance performance I felt here in the city as a memorial carnival. So there's also this joyful way of, of grieving, of coming together. And I think that's super, super important. And, uh, and we should also remember that, that this is also an option. So, thanks. This was not a question, but uh, a, good, a good remark. Thank you. <laughs> no, um, so, but um, maybe then we have a moment, so maybe you two would uh, each um, 
you would you have to add something to the end of this conversation? Oh, everything is said. <laughs> I'd just well, like to thank you. Thank you very much for including me. Well, then I, I, I enjoyed this. I learned from it. Then I uh, thank you very much, Judith Butler, Max Haven, everybody for coming here. Uh, I would just like to announce um, that the Art of Assembly is continuing um, end of October with Nora Sternfeld and others. Uh, if you're interested in what happened so far and what will happen in the future, maybe have a look at the website or uh, subscribe to the newsletter. And um, thank you very much uh, for this discussion. It's really the opposite of the endless deliberations uh, we had in, in, in having movements and, and so on. So this is on the time. <laughs> Thanks a lot for joining <laughs> and good night. Thank you.